Genesis and the first part of Exodus were interesting to read, but now it's getting a bit strange. What do all these laws about what to eat and diseases and how to build a tabernacle and how to sacrifice animals, what in the world does that have to do with us today? And why should we even bother reading them? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pren, and welcome to Bible 805. Today we're going to answer those questions and more in our lesson entitled, What do the Old Testament laws and strange rituals have to do with us today? After the familiar stories of Genesis and the first part of Exodus, which almost everybody knows about if they've watched the movie The Ten Commandments, which by the way was fairly accurate, we're now into one of the hardest sections of the Bible for many people to read. The last part of Exodus and going through Leviticus and Numbers. This is where a lot of times people break down in their in their resolution to read through the entire Bible. People either quit entirely or they skip these books. But if you do that, you're really robbing yourself of the understanding that you will have of the entire Bible if you read through these sections. The prophets will make so much more sense to you, your understanding of the New Testament will be so much richer, and your appreciation for God and how he has really organized everything and planned everything throughout all of history will be so much deeper and richer. But (laughs) that isn't to say that you don't need a little help in getting through them, which is what this podcast series, what these lessons are all about. Now, I'm going to give you some overall tips for reading and then uh, some additional things specifically that will help. Number one, don't get bogged down in the details at your first time through. It can be so easy to just start obsessing with, well, why did God say this? And what in the world is that all about? In addition to listening to these lessons, a good study Bible can be very helpful at this point. The Life Application Bible is really good because it's life application. It's just so practical. If you can get one of those and read through it, that's great. If not, just just don't worry about the little details for now. Now, in addition to that, overall, it will help you tremendously if you understand two concepts that I'm going to talk about in detail in this lesson. Number one, God's expectations of his people. And number two, the whole topic of biblical typology. Now let's look at each one of these in more detail. First of all, God's expectations of us. So often today we hear people saying things like, well, God isn't supposed to do that, or I can't believe in a God who does this, or all sorts of statements that talk about our expectations of God, but we forget that he is the one that's in charge. And what these books show us is his expectations of us. What are the expectations that we learn from these books? Now, as they say with the movies and all, spoiler alert, A lot of what I'm going to say is not what we want to hear because God's expectations of us aren't exactly what we a lot of times want to do. But it's so important for us to hear these things today because so much of Christianity has just been reduced to uplifting talks about what will make us feel better in the coming week and worship songs that just make us feel good. And it's all about us in so much contemporary Christianity. And that's really 
not what the Bible teaches. Now, obviously, a trust in Jesus as your Savior will result in ultimately you feeling a whole lot better, so much better than you can ever even imagine in eternity. And though God does promise to be with us in all our challenges of life and that they will ultimately turn out for good, remember there's no guarantee that good will happen in this life let alone by the end of next week because we want everything to be taken care of by then. It just doesn't work like that and God wants you to expect that. Now keep in mind one of the most important things that you're going to learn from understanding God's true expectations of humanity is this will keep you from worshiping a false God. You cannot have false expectations of God and then be angry with him because he doesn't fulfill your false expectations. It doesn't work like that. So what are some of the expectations that God has for us that we will learn from reading these books of the Bible? Number one, we'll learn that what God expects from the people he redeems. Now God showed his great love and care in redeeming his people from Egypt. This is a picture of pure grace just as much as our salvation is in the New Testament because the Israelites did not do anything to earn or deserve deliverance. God saved them out of Egypt, but he didn't take them out of Egypt or give us salvation, so we just do whatever we wanted to. God's expectation for Israel then and for Christians today is that we are supposed to obey him. We're to be his witnesses. We're to be his ambassadors to the world. And that requires that we understand a couple of things. Number one, how God wants to be worshipped. This is his second major expectation. He tells us how he wants us to worship him. And he lays this out very clearly in the Old Testament. He gave them exact instructions for how they were to build the tabernacle, how they were to do the sacrifices. Now we have very different ways that we do things, of course, today. And this is where the study of typology, which I'll get into in just a few minutes, will help us. But the point here is that one of God's expectations is that he decides how he is to be worshipped. The third thing, the third expectation that is so important, and we just, in all honesty, many people today just don't want to hear this, is God has an expectation that we will follow how he wants us to live. Now, again, this doesn't mean following all the Old Testament dietary and social laws. We're going to discuss in much more detail as we go along why we don't need to obey a lot of this ceremonial law. And Paul and Jesus both clarify this a lot in the New Testament. But now here is a thing that I want you to listen to, and I want you to listen closely, because you just don't hear this very much today in many of our churches or many Christian books or, or, or many things. In the overall principle is that God expects his people to be different, to live holy, set-apart lives as defined by him. 
Now the rules over time have changed on exactly what that means, but he never in the Old Testament or New Testament expects people to be just like the rest of the world. People that have a free ticket to heaven, but they're living however they just want to live. And again, I know this isn't popular to say this, and I know the working out of the details of it can be difficult and challenging, but we have to realize that God is the one who sets the standards, who has the expectations of us. And this is the vision that we will get out of these books if we read them closely. I realize there will be a lot of challenges to what I've just said because what I'm describing is not fun. And in our world today, fun is seen as the highest value. But when we look at these books of what God expected of his people, it isn't. He has much more in mind for us. Now, it's kind of hard to get through all of it, reading about infectious diseases and spreading mildew and all of that kind of thing. But just because it's hard, just because to really understand it isn't easy, doesn't mean that we should avoid it. There are a lot of things that are hard to do that will help us grow spiritually, and studying these books is one of those things. Now, there, I don't want to leave you discouraged. There are two tools that I'm going to give you that will really help you in your study that will help you understand these books much better. Tool number one is historical context. And as you know, I love history. I, I really try to teach with the historical context in mind. And as we go through these books, I will be bringing up numerous specific examples. Just a couple of them, though, to help you understand initially. There are a lot of laws in these books on sexual purity, and some of them seem a little bit weird. But when you look at the whole bigger picture, the point of all of these sexual laws is that God wanted his people and his worship to be totally separate from sexuality. Now, in no way is he saying sexuality is evil or wrong or anything like that, but he wanted to separate that very much from worship. And the reason is during that time, so many, not so many, pretty much all of the pagan religions had sex as part of their worship service. And God wanted his people to know that no, that has nothing to do with worship. So that's one of the bigger historical pictures you have to understand. Because if you don't understand the whole context of what was going on in the the people surrounding Israel, a lot of the laws won't make sense. Another one that is there's a tremendous amount of misunderstanding on, and that is that statement in in these books where it talks about an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, when it's setting forth the laws. Now, actually, during that time, that was a very moderate and just law. In other law codes of the time, vengeance was much, much harsher, and it was applied differently to different classes of people. Basically, what this is saying, and it wasn't literally eye for an eye, as many commentators say, it's just whatever the crime did or injured or cost, that is the penalty and no more. Now, even Hammurabi's code, which is historically set up as this great, wonderful thing, it was very, very different. Uh, let me just read you the eye for an eye section out of that. It says, and I'm quoting, If a man has destroyed the eye of a man of the gentleman class, they shall destroy his eye. If he destroyed the eye of a commoner, he shall pay one mina of silver. If he has destroyed the eye of a gentleman's slave, he shall pay half the slave's price. 
Well, you can see in this that justice very much depended on your social status. And in the Old Testament, that had absolutely nothing to do with it. Everyone was to be treated the same before the law. So we're going to talk about the whole historical aspects of this and the setting as we go through the different books. But I want you to see that one of the tools that will help you understand these challenging books is the historical context. The second one is typology. And this is kind of a big deal thing. It's one of what's called a hermeneutical tool. Now, first of all, what do we mean by a hermeneutical tool? Well, hermeneutics, that's the theory and methodology for interpreting the Bible. Let me say that again. Hermeneutics is the theory and methodology for interpreting the Bible. The Bible is a book that needs interpretation. It is a challenging book to read. Now, I will go through, I will discuss various hermeneutical tools as we go through the Bible. I'm doing this in the context of different books instead of just having a whole series of classes on hermeneutics. I've done that sometimes in the past, but I got to thinking about it and I, I thought that it's much better to put them in context. Typology is one of those tools. Now we will talk about other ones as we go along. In the next few weeks, the next one that I'm going to, the next hermeneutical tool, is I will talk about how you're to proper, properly understand historical narratives. In other words, you can't take historical narratives as exactly what you're supposed to do. For example, a lot of the characters in the Bible did very bad things. And just because it's in the Bible, we shouldn't copy what they did. The story's told so that we'll learn from it, so we'll see consequences, but you have to learn how to interpret those carefully. Now this one, we're going to talk specifically about typology. Now, first of all, I'm going to give you a definition of it, but bear with me because it's going to take a little while to understand this, but this is one of the most important things you need to understand in interpreting the Bible as a whole. Okay, a definition of typology, and this comes from a really good book entitled Hermeneutics by Henry A. Verkler, and this is what he says. Typology is based on the assumption that there is a pattern in God's work throughout salvation history. God prefigured his redemptive work in the Old Testament and fulfilled it in the New. In the Old Testament are shadows of things to be more fully revealed in the New. The ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, for example, demonstrated to Old Testament believers the necessity of atonement for their sins. These ceremonies pointed forward to the perfect atonement made in Christ. This prefigurement is called the type. The corresponding figure that fulfills it is called the anti-type. Now, this is where it really gets confusing for a lot of people. We understand the type, okay, this is like an example, whatever. But then, what's with the anti-type? Because the non-biblical definition of anti-type is something that's the opposite. So how does the opposite fulfill it? It's very confusing. It's unfortunate that we have that definition of antitype in the English-speaking secular world because the Greek term antitupos does not mean opposite. It means corresponding as an impression to the die. Now this might be a little, little hard to visualize, but I want you to work really hard on it. Here's what it actually means. I want you to picture some lead type. 
you know, you've all seen pictures of that where it's the little blocks and there's a letter or whatever on it. Now, when type was actually set, from the viewpoint of the typesetter, it was set into what's called a composing stick. It was a little frame that was put in and it was done from left to right and upside down. So that's what the type looked like. But then when you printed with it, that was the impression of the die. It was much clearer. You can read what it wrote. I have a slide for what I'm doing in the class where you can see the, the, um, the type pieces for Merry Christmas upside down and it looks like backwards. But then when you turn it and you print, you can see the word Merry Christmas very clearly. That's a really good illustration. And that's what the Greek words were basically referring to is that like the type set, those are the laws in the Old Testament. They were there, all the information was there, but they weren't really clear. And then when Christ came along, you see the full picture in all of its clarity. Verkler goes on with his definition and he gives an example that I think might help. He says, a type is a shadow cast on the pages of the Old Testament by a truth whose full embodiment or antitype is found in New Testament revelation. And a great example of this is John 3, 14 and 15, where it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now Jesus is pointing out two resemblances here. Number one, the lifting up of the servant, which pictured his death on the cross and just like people were healed from the disease that they had by looking at the lifted up servant so too when people look to Jesus they have eternal life in him. Now a little bit more about types because it's just really fascinating. Types are always, and this is what distinguishes typology from analogies and parables and just explanations and things like that. Types must be thoroughly rooted in history, both the type and the antitype. In the example I just gave you of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, that was a true historical event. When Jesus died on the cross, that was a true historical event, both the type and the antitype took place in true history. So types are prophetic, and most of them have to do with what would be happening with Christ. They're definitely an integral part of redemption history, uh, Baker's Theological Dictionary tells us. Now, they may only be partially fulfilled in the New Testament, and more fulfillment may be coming, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Let's look at a few more specific examples of how typology relates to the passages that you're going to be reading in the last part of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. The Jewish tabernacle as a whole, and we will go into more detail on this when we, we study it, but overall it's typically seen as illustrating various things about Jesus. For example, when Jesus comes to earth, he describes himself as the door and as the only way to God. In the Old Testament tabernacle, there was only one way, 
one gateway, one door, if you will, to get into the tabernacle. One of the most significant types in the Old Testament is that of the sacrificial lamb. This lamb was continuously sacrificed again, well, not the same lamb, of course, but various lambs, sacrificed again and again throughout all of the Old Testament as a covering. It never took away sin, but it covered sin And Old Testament believers knew that a time was coming when there would be a Messiah who would take away their sins. So imagine how incredibly significant that was when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to him to be baptized. And imagine if your whole life you had participated in the sacrifice of lambs. You knew your sin wasn't totally done away with, but it was covered. You knew a Messiah was coming. And John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. A really fantastic minute. And then, as I said earlier, not all of the types are totally fulfilled even in New Testament times because we look ahead to in Revelations 5.12 it talks about one day praising God and part of that praise will be his people saying worthy is the lamb who was slain. Briefly one more typology example that I just think is really interesting and that is in the temple there was a veil that blocked the Holy of Holies. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was and only the high priest could go behind this veil once a year on the Day of Atonement to make a sacrifice but all of the people were blocked literally and figuratively from the presence of God in the Holy of Holies but when Jesus died it says the veil was ripped in half and the significance of that of course is that now we have access to God because of what Jesus did and there are so many many more but those are just a few that we'll be talking about now there are some things that we need to understand and that is that a type is not an analogy now analogies are not bad at all Um, an analogy is talking about things that are similar in some way but just don't confuse them from a type a type is tied to history in the Bible and in real world history. Remember again the sacrifices of the Lamb and Jesus. These are historical realities. Now analogies though can be used in many ways and they're often very culturally tied. Now Charles Spurgeon who was one of the great preachers he used analogies a lot. Let me read one of his to you because I think this is just a great one and you'll be able to see the difference. Spurgeon said, Put on one side of the room a fine meal from the best chef in England, and on the other side a pig trough filled with pig slop. If you released a pig into the room every single time, he'd go to the pig trough. Why? Because he's a pig. That's what pigs do. Now, if the pig was supernaturally transformed into a human being, he would not want to eat from the pig trough anymore. He can't even take pig food without vomiting. So he'd go to the meal made by the chef. Why? because he's human now. He's not a pig anymore. Now if you are truly converted, and here's the analogy, and heading for heaven, then that analogy that analogy has just described your conversion. When God supernaturally changed your will and desires from a sin-loving and righteousness-hating pig to a sin-hating and righteousness-loving human, every once in a while the Christian may forget that he's no longer a pig and go to eat from the trough. 
But as soon as he does, he'll want to vomit. And if anyone sees him eating from the pig trough, he's ashamed. Why? Because he's not a pig anymore. Humans do not eat from pig troughs. Now to develop the analogy further. If someone claims they're a Christian, but they have not much appetite for righteousness, but would rather openly walk in sin, if they have not much interest in going to the fine meal, but would rather eat from the pig trough, then it's evident that they're probably still a pig. As evidence is showing, their will and desires have not been changed by God, but rather they are unregenerate and unconverted. As Jesus said, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So you can see here, really, it's it's a great analogy that's used to teach something. And analogies really can be powerful teaching tools. Jesus used them all the time. He said the kingdom of, of heaven is like this or that or whatever. You know, it's pearls of great price or it's a person finding this. Or there's many times that he used analogies. And analogies are also useful for Bible application. Spurgeon just did that. I do that a lot in my teaching. Because of this, then we need to do that. But analogies are not types. Now let me expand just a little bit on the importance of typology. And this comes from a really good article. It's on the significance of Bible typology. And I will have a link to it on the website because it's, it's really a good one for you to read. It comes from the equip.org site. And it says, Biblical typology, as evidenced in the writing of the New Testament, always involves a heightening of the type in the antitype. In other words, of the first thing in the fulfillment. It is not simply that Jesus replaces the temple as a new but otherwise equal substitute. No! Jesus is far greater than the temple. It's not as though Jesus is simply another in the line of prophets with Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. No, Jesus is a much greater prophet. It's not as though the new covenant replaces the old covenant with a more modern but equivalent alternative. No, the new covenant is greater than the old covenant. As Hebrews 7.22 says, it renders the old obsolete. The type, thus, is so heightened escalated or intensified in the antitype that by contrast the previous loses its own weight and significance. And my comment that I would have on this is that's why we're no longer under the law. The greater fulfillment has come. We don't need to obey all these old rules because what has superseded it is so much more important. The article continues, finally, it's important to point out that antitypes themselves may also function as types of future realities. Now listen to this carefully because it's really cool. Communion, for example, is the antitype, the future fulfillment of the Passover meal. Each year the Jews celebrated Passover in remembrance of God sparing the firstborn sons in the homes of Israelite families that were marked by the blood of the Passover lamb. Jesus' celebration of the Passover meal with his disciples on the night of his arrest symbolically points to the fact that he is the ultimate Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And though the Last Supper and the corresponding sacrament of communion serve as the antitype of the Passover meal, and this this is where it's really kind of neat, they also point forward to their ultimate fulfillment 
in the wedding supper of the Lamb that we hear about in Revelation 19.9. On that glorious day, the purified bride, true Israel, will be united with her bridegroom in the new heaven and the new earth. Now let's talk a few minutes about how we can apply what I've just talked about. God has a purpose in including these books in our Bible. They're not just odd, outdated laws, events, and sort of Bible trivia for no reason. They served very practical purposes at the time, which we will talk about in more detail when we talk about the history of the individual books and different sections in them. But also, there are many types that point to future realities. To understand all of the Bible better, you need to read all of it. Don't get bogged down by the details. You won't understand them all, especially on the first time you read through. But once again, try to pull back as you're reading to God's view outside of history. And you won't really see this until we get through the whole Bible. So this is partly a trust me. Um, It's going to be so worth it when you do this, that as you get into the prophets, as you get into other parts of the Old Testament, and then of course, finally, when we get into the New Testament, what you've read before will come alive to you in a way that it hasn't in the past when you see how God throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, has been working out his plan of salvation. From first to last and forever, he has a plan for us. Studying these types is wonderful now, but I was thinking as I was doing this lesson how exciting it will be to also experience the future fulfillment of things that we only dimly understand now. In the same way that the reality of Jesus coming to earth was so much greater than the sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament, imagine how great our joy is going to be when we see him face to face. That's all for now. Please check out the notes, the links, and the other materials that I have for you at www.bible805.com. And please invite your friends to listen to this podcast and learn all of the things that you can when you look at the Bible as a whole. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pren, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are love, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.